Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast, where we discuss issues of governance and social change in the Middle East and North Africa. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are joined by a special guest, Professor Anvareman, who is the founder of MELG and served as its editor-in-chief for its first 10 years of publication. Beyond this important role, Enver is a professor of law and history at the University of Toronto, where he is also the director of the Institute of Islamic Studies. In addition to numerous articles, he is the author of several books, including Islamic Natural Law Theories, Religious Pluralism and Islamic Law, Dimis and Others in the Empire of Law, Islamic and Jewish Legal Reasoning, Encountering Our Legal Other, and forthcoming is his co-authored Oxford Handbook on Islamic Law. Enver, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I've mentioned a few of your publications and some of the many hats you wear, uh, but would you mind providing the listeners with a little background about yourself and your work? Sure. Um, my my training is as both a lawyer and as a historian, so I pursued uh, a formal legal education within the law school academies here in North America, resulting in a, in a doctoral program that um, led me to write my second book, the one on uh, religious pluralism and Islamic law. I also pursued uh, a history studies program that led me through um, an undergraduate, master's, and PhD level program, uh, which resulted in my first book, Islamic Natural Law Theories. And together, both those programs of study allowed me to emphasize different aspects of Islamic legal history. One more theoretical, intellectually oriented around the epistemic assumptions of Islamic law. The second, much more um, historically and politically oriented around the, the effects of law in the construction of community and how we then imagine the world. And doing that from a medieval Islamic legal perspective and then comparing it to the way we contemporarily do it today in courts around the world offered me an opportunity to really interrogate how we think about tolerance and the way Islam and Islamic law gets featured in those conversations uh, inappropriately, inappropriately so, I would argue. Great. Thank you very much for that introduction, Enver. Uh, so in Melk's final issue of 2019, you authored a very interesting field note on the study of Islam that I'd like to dive into a little today. At the start of your field note, you mentioned that, quote, in the halls of advanced research, the memory of September 11th and the ensuing war on terror it spawned has had the effect, whether deserved or not, of signaling a sea of change in the formation of research agendas, the development and deployment of expertise, and the marshalling of resources to support both. 9-11 began to affect who could study and produce research, and to what ends. I was hoping you could speak a little today to the effects that 9-11 has had on Middle East studies, and the effects in particular this had on the representation of Muslims and Islam in that literature. Well, I've been very intrigued, particularly as I took on the role of director of an institute on Islamic studies, about how we talk about Islam, how we decide what the research question is, how the disciplines that we come from help us frame the kinds of questions and conversations that we have had. And my own training, which was very textually oriented, but then um, merging into a more institutional interest in law and legal institutions, made me think about how do we move from the conditions of lived reality, though in the context of my work in the, in, the, in the halls of courtrooms and legislative bodies, through and to this historical past that we call a tradition or a discursive tradition? 
And how do we also understand that past as it relates to the very real lives of those whose bodies animate our public sphere, our news cycles, and who we as academics often treat as objects of analysis rather than subjects with a voice? And so one of the things that struck me is how so much of our academic production is very much defined by the context in which we live. It's not particularly a unique observation and certainly not novel, but it is very poignant when we think about the American conversation on Islam and Muslims and and the effect that has on academic production, the European um, orientation towards the study of Islam and Muslims and how that affects its more regional orientation towards the production of knowledge on Islam and Muslims. And having lived in Canada now for almost 15 years, I began to appreciate the distinctiveness of these regional parochialisms uh, simply by the fact that Canada has this curious triangulation with respect to both the European continent and the United States down south as academics in this country um, calibrate their own questions and research for audiences that are wide ranging. And so In thinking about the study of Islam and Muslims, particularly post 9-11, I couldn't help but notice certain trends when we think of legislation around immigration, legislation around area studies, um, particularly with respect to public funding of these areas, and the way the language of the state, the way the language of loyalty began to inform who gets to be deemed an expert and what is decided, uh, what, what gets to be decided or called valuable research, uh, whether it's in terms of grant funding or simple public uh, expenditures on university programs. And it's in that context I began to wonder more about Islam, not so much as a thing that we study, but rather as a variable that gets deployed in the service of various state projects. Uh, And in the article, you use the term passive objects. In what way have Muslims in Islam been treated as passive objects of knowledge? That's a great question. I, I titled the article, The Islamic Deployed. Um, and in the title, the, the word Islamic is in, is in quotes. And the idea there is that I am purposely using the term Islamic rather than Islam to emphasize the adjectival sense of the term. When we use it as a, as a noun, we seem to assume it has a thingness to it that we can look at, investigate, and examine. It's a taken-for-granted thingness. But when I shifted the register grammatically from noun to adjective, I began to see it as a label that we put on things for various other purposes. And trying to understand those purposes is what intrigued me. And that's why the rest of the title is, you know, when I say the Islamic deployed, the word deployed is in the passive tense. It begs the question, who's doing the deploying? And so for the purposes of that article, I very much focus on the state and certain projects of the state, whether it's security, immigration, um, anti-terror works or whatnot. All of these are faceless, nameless institutional projects that generate uh, policy decisions and government activity and sometimes coercive government activity, oftentimes based on certain constructions of Islam or the Muslim. We see this certainly in anti-terrorism prosecutions. We see this in uh, counter-violent extremism activities and programs. And while my focus is on the state, uh, unsurprisingly, given my training as a lawyer, I do think that 
my hope is for colleagues in the field of Islamic studies to recognize that whether you're an ethnographer, whether you're a textually focused philologist, one other aspect for the field of Islamic studies needs to include the rhetorical construction or the the social construction of Islam and Muslims. Um, and in, in that sense, I rely heavily on Stuart Hall, thinking of Islam and Muslims as, uh, in this adjectival sense, as a type of sliding signifier. Great. You've preempted my next question a little, uh, which is to ask what you hope the deployment of Islamic and Muslim in the adjectival sense can achieve uh, for a future research agenda. Well, I think that if we begin to see the construction of Islam and Muslims in this fashion, it might demand that we begin to ask slightly different questions. If we think, for instance, about departments of history, they're often structured around periodization schemes, late antiquity, medieval, late medieval, early modern, modern. Uh, when we think about area studies programs, we think of them in terms of very specific regions uh, of the world. But one of the concerns that I'm, I raise in this article is that when uh, you have a discursive tradition like Islam and a global community of, uh, of individuals who call themselves Muslims, this kind of disciplinary framework may not, in fact, capture what we think it's capturing. Um, if I'm an ethnographer, there's an inherent presentism in that kind of work. If I'm a philologist, there's an implicit historical positivism in that particular kind of approach. And I want to, I want to suggest another way. And so the article um, is oriented and organized around what I call four registers of analysis. Uh, the four registers are time, space, scale, and rhetoric. And my idea is that at least, for instance, taking time, it's very hard for me to imagine the study of Islam in a periodized fashion without at least thinking about it, how, how it gets deployed in similar ways across different periods of time that we might not otherwise put together. So in the article, I think about, for instance, Pope Urban II's uh, declaration um, to, to fight the First Crusade and the language of barbarism as it takes shape there. But I also look at the way barbarism as a term of art has been used even in the 18th, 19th, and then even more recently here in Canada in, in 2015 to talk about Muslims and Islam as, as if they are therefore barbaric. And while I'm not suggesting that um, we as a society necessarily draw upon these uh, medieval or earlier historical traditions, I am suggesting that however distant those traditions may be, they nonetheless constitute a legacy, an inheritance, a patrimony that we can't simply ignore and that our current historical disciplinary framings mm -hmm preclude us from really putting those together. The same thing with space. We oftentimes look at the study of Islam with respect to one country or another, and the demands of specialization certainly require that kind of analysis. But we lose something also when we don't see these spaces, particularly in a more global environment like ours, as much more connected. So the example I give in the article is Sharia, Islamic law. On the one hand, we saw in 2011 a number of debates in the U.S. around banning Islamic law. We also see in countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia the centrality of Islam and Islamic law to how they imagine their country and their legal order. My argument is that in both of these contexts, Islam is being deployed in the service of the state to address core values. One happens to be exclusive of Islam, one happens to be encompassed by Islam. 
But what we're really talking about are other states themselves and how they understand themselves, communicate themselves, and their vision and their 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 sense of imagined community to draw on Benedict Anderson to their constituencies. Scale would be a third one. We oftentimes don't think in terms of scale. Scale is an attempt to to, to ask of my colleagues in, in the field to to stop thinking about the state as if it's some sort of ambiguous abstract ideal that that is both everywhere and nowhere the state is is a is a complicated entity but it's not always as nasty as we think it is it's not always as rational as we think it is sometimes it's bumbling sometimes it's fragile sometimes it's deeply humanitarian as someone like uh, William Novak would argue in his the people's welfare so what I ask uh, colleagues is to think when they are addressing the state how do we how do we see it and how do we see its different arms and different bureaucracies working together, sometimes not working together at all? The example I give there is Saudi Arabia. Um, you could, on the one hand, rely on Saudi Arabia's fatwa council to, to learn that Saudi Arabia will take the position that insurance is haram or, or illicit on the grounds that it constitutes unlawful speculation under Islamic law. On the other hand, you could look at the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority and learn that it has carriage of all of Saudi Arabia's commercial insurance market regime, knowing that and, and espousing it as particularly important to the to the country's economic well-being. These are two different scales of Islamicity. Islam is invoked in both areas, both the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority as well as the Fatwa Council, but in two very contradictory ways raising the question, what exactly is Islam or Islamic law doing in Saudi Arabia when we look at the particularities of something like insurance? And scale allows us to appreciate the complexity, sometimes inconsistency of the state and how that inconsistency is in fact productive of the state. And rhetoric is really just a return back to my earlier discussion around the terms Islamic and Muslim in an adjectival sense, really thinking about the way they oftentimes uh, rather than being noun-like stand-ins for a thing with a thingness that we can ident- identify, I'm very interested in seeing them as tropes, as gestures, um, sometimes meaning more than the terms themselves, meaning less, pointing to something else. Um, and so I am mindful that these terms oftentimes carry much more baggage than um, historians or otherwise might um, allow. And I'm asking my colleagues to recognize that and center that as well as part of our academic study. Right. And, and what do you see as the, the methodological implications of applying these, these four registers? That's a great question. I do think that we are in an environment where something like Islam and Muslims um, can't simply be addressed from one disciplinary angle or another. We certainly do it, and we certainly see the production of knowledge around that, and I think it's that's going to continue. Um, but what I'm asking for is a recognition that at a certain point, we in the humanities, less so in the social sciences, but certainly in the interpretive social sciences, need to do better about around issues of either interdisciplinarity or collaborative research. On the one hand, we do not see collaboration, collaborative co-authoring particularly um, incentivized in the way we reward faculty uh, or grad students, uh, including in in their promotion systems. We oftentimes see co-authoring as halving the, the, the workload, sometimes not necessarily being as valuable as a sole authored product but I do think that the study of Islam and Muslims 
offers us an opportunity to think harder about the way we incentivize the production of knowledge in the university, our opportunities that are missed by not thinking across disciplines or even within a single discipline, uh, we need to also raise questions about how it's structured in ways that preclude us seeing patterns that are nonetheless very stark and very real. So what I am asking is whether you're a historian within the one period, I'm asking you to think across periods, whether you're an, if you're an area studies person, I'm asking you to think across areas. If you're a humanities person, I'm asking you to think across disciplines that might not necessarily be comfortable for you, or at the very least, think about what it would mean to collaborate with others outside of these, these, uh, these narrow disciplines. It isn't something we incentivize. It might be something that has to be structured through larger grant projects. Universities need to think harder about uh, how to facilitate more effective collaboration within the humanities. These sorts of collaborations are quite common in the STEM in the STEM field. It's not uncommon to see um, multi-authored articles. In fact, it's probably the norm. And we lose something when we don't leverage the capacities each of us brings within our field to the other. Great. Well, Anver, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.